Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Morrissey Movement. The purpose of this podcast is to discuss and share one aspect of fitness and one aspect of medicine. Being a general surgeon and a garage gym athlete, I have a strong passion for both of these aspects of life. So sit back and enjoy the show. This podcast is for entertainment purposes only. I am in no way forming a patient-doctor relationship. While the aspects discussed in this podcast are medically accurate, you should always discuss with your doctor any questions that you may have about the content. You should always discuss with your doctor before starting any new exercise or dietary changes. Hey, what's up, everybody? I'm back for another episode of the Morrissey Movement. Um... I want to thank everybody who's been listening to the show so far and giving the positive ratings. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Um, sorry I'm a little bit late getting it out this week. Life's just been kind of busy, so I intended to have this out earlier in the week, but I'm making up for it now. So, um, so let's go ahead and get started. The podcast today is brought to you by Sex Panther. Yes, it is illegal in nine countries, but 60% of the time, it works every time. And since we are talking about 60%, Today's topics are going to be zone 2 heart rate training and hernias. So hernias have nothing to do with 60 to 70 percentile, but I just was throwing that in there. So um, so let's go ahead and dive in. For those of you that aren't familiar with Sex Panther Reference, it's from Anchorman, so it's not really a real thing. I'm just pretending that they are sponsoring me today on my podcast. So I felt it was sort of fitting for what's going to happen today. So first off, I'm going to start off about hernias. So what the heck is a hernia anyway? Surely everyone has heard of one or knows someone that knows someone that has had a hernia in the past. So a hernia in general is just simply a defect in a tissue plane of some sort, usually resulting in an organ protruding through where that it shouldn't be. So this could be due to weakened or non-developed musculature in a particular area. It can also occur in any area of the body. The more common ones people have heard include inguinal or groin hernias, umbilical or belly button hernias, and incisional hernias where you've had a previous operation. Some other hernias include the diaphragm, which are called hiatal hernias, which I'm sure a lot of people have talked about. You can have them in the low back musculature. You can have it down around the pelvic or bladder region. So hernias in general can either be congenital, which means you're born with it, or acquired as a result of a trauma of some sort. So I'll go through the main ones and kind of describe how I go about repairing them just in you know not in a lot of detail but a little bit of detail so um, now there's much more technical jargon but I'm going to try to keep this simple if I can so groin hernias which are the ones are called inguinals they can occur at birth or later in life so sometimes hernias were repaired shortly after birth if they're significant enough um, so this will be performed as what's called a suture repair so we do not put mesh into children because they continue to grow and the tissues will stretch out where is the mesh is a fixed size and it doesn't grow so um, you it'll cause pain and there's no way that we can do that so if the hernia does occur again later in life then typically it'll be fixed with a mesh depending on the surgeon depending on the type of hernia other comorbidities etc um, these can occur also usually in men lifting more weight in the gym or moving a very heavy object and they hear a pop and experience an intense amount of pain and usually have a bulge that can't be reduced or pushed back in this type of hernia typically gets repaired in a more urgent fashion so those are the groin hernias umbilical hernias or belly button hernias can also be congenital or acquired so when we develop in utero and we're forming as a fetus our intestines actually herniate outside of the abdomen around the sixth week of development so 
due to the fact that the liver and the intestines rapidly are growing in comparison to the container of the abdomen that they're in, they actually get pushed out through the belly button. Um, and then what happens here is around the ninth week, they return back to the abdomen, taking its positions to where they belong. So um, the duodenum, which is the first part of the small intestine, or some people say duodenum, there's a C-shape to this. So it is a continuation straight off the stomach. The jejunum is a second part of the small intestine, and the ileum is the third part. So these actually spin approximately 270 degrees on its blood vessel axis called the superior mesenteric artery. Um, so everyone has a physiologic hernia at birth, but the majority of these clothes, just by design, you know, cells are designed to grow and then die. That's part of their programming. So <clears throat> as long as this goes correctly, then everything is fine. <clears throat> There's actually two persistent hernia defects worth mentioning that some people may have heard of or they may have experienced them themselves. So one is called an omphalocele and the other one is called gastroschisis. So gastroschisis occurs in about 1 in 2200 births per year, and an ophthalmocele occurs way more rare, 1 in about 5300 births per year. So what's the difference? An ophthalmocele is where the small intestines doesn't return inside the abdomen, and it's actually covered with an amniotic sac, whereas a gastroschisis is the same, but there isn't a sac covering the intestines. So <clears throat> there are way more variations, and that's beyond really the scope of this podcast, so I'm just kind of mentioning these. But um, So those two issues... There is, they typically have a surgery at birth to correct this, and then an umbilical hernia can result or occur, you know, of, of these areas later in life. They can occur due to pregnancy, they can due to progressive weakening in the abdominal wall, etc. So the third hernia I'm going to talk about is a ventral hernia, which is a defect anywhere along the abdominal wall in the front. Um, there are multiple eponyms for some of these hernias, but again, not really important here. Uh, this is typically due to previous surgeries like an open bowel surgery, an open gallbladder surgery, appendix, and so on. So if it occurs through a previous incision, then by definition is called an incisional hernia. If it occurs along the abdominal wall without a previous incision, then we call that a ventral hernia. Now there's another variation worth mentioning, something called a diastasis recti. Um, this is confused as a hernia, but actually is not a hernia at all. It's just a weakening in the abdominal wall, but there's no true defect present. So sometimes it looks like a football underneath your skin. It can take up almost the entire abdominal wall. This isn't a true hernia and, to my knowledge, does not get repaired. Um, usually this is due to multiple pregnancies, obesity, or just overall deconditioning leading to weakness of the abdominal wall. So I was always taught these can't be repaired. If someone does fix them out there, then that is fine. But I just never learned to do these in my training. All my attendings always told me to leave them alone and do not attempt to repair these. So, so if someone comes to my office... Uh, with a hernia in general for a consult, there's a fairly fixed conversation that I typically have with them. I start off by doing a complete history and physical exam like I do on everything, not just for hernias. I specifically want to know if they've had the surgery before and also if they've had the hernia repaired in the past. It is also helpful to know if there is a mesh there or not. So once we go through all the questioning, once the history is collected, then I typically do a physical exam. I will look at their abdomen and then push around on it to see if I can elicit any pain and or if I can see the actual hernia because sometimes you can't see it for various reasons. So I will then see if it can be reduced or pushed back in. Sometimes I'll get a CAT scan of the abdomen or a CT scan to assess 
what's inside the hernia if I really can't tell where it is or if the patient is larger and I can't really feel it with my hands. Um, so once we have the diagnosis, then I have a conversation with the patient. Just because you have a hernia doesn't mean it has to be repaired. Some people come in having hernias and they just, you know, they're fine. Uh, they'd have no desire for surgery. Their family doctor just sent them to talk to me about it. So, um, <clears throat> but then, so as long as things are fine, then we can typically wait. But I like to repair hernias um, laparoscopically if I can, which is most of the time, whether it's inguinal or ventral or umbilical or wherever it is, um, I almost always repair the hernia with a mesh. Um, I always say, you never say always, you never say never in medicine, but I rarely, not, I usually do use a mesh. So unless there's an infection at the same time, or if it's such a small hernia that mesh isn't needed, um, I will go through the risks and complications regarding the hernia repair, which is typically bleeding, infection, injury to any internal organs requiring another surgery to fix. Then if everyone is on the same page and we want to do it, then we schedule it to go to the operating room. Now, there is a lot of bad press going on right now regarding mesh. It has been for the last couple of years. So the ones that caused all the problems and were recalled are no longer in use. Yes, it is a foreign body in the abdomen, but in multiple studies, it shows the repairs are superior to primary tissue repairs alone. Now, anything that is repaired, it can fail. The hernia recurrence rate, on average, depending on what source you read, is around 3 to 5%. So, yes, it can happen despite the surgeon being very skilled and competent. Um, so, regarding hernias themselves, there's kind of two general terms that are used um, just kind of describing if they are stuck. Um, so these terms are incarceration and strangulation. So incarceration is when the contents of the hernia are stuck, but all of the tissue is still viable, it's alive, or strangulation means the tissue is dying and it has to be operated on urgently or emergently. Um, so I, I've had one of each of these in the last couple of months, so that's kind of what stemmed this topic as well. I had a lady that came in with a kind of a large groin bulge and she had a bowel obstruction because she had a loop of small intestine stuck in this hernia. So, um, and once I went to the operating room, I put a laparoscope in, I inflated her abdomen with air, and I could see the hernia. And once I pulled the small intestine out, that part was actually dead. It was black. Um, so what I did is I took it out of the defect, I fixed the hernia with a mesh, and then I did a bowel resection. Um, then there was another older gentleman that um, had half of his sigmoid colon stuck in his groin and is down into his scrotum. So that was just stuck, and I had to do, I did not have to do a bowel resection um, on this patient. So I was able to get the the colon out of his out of the hernia defect, and everything was viable. So I just fixed the hernia in the normal fashion. So. Um, so pretty much that's hernias in a nutshell. You know, again, there's way more technical details about the repair and everything, but I just kind of wanted to broadly talk about hernias, and if people have specific questions, they can email me and ask me. Um, so now since we got done talking about that, I'm going to move on to the Zone 2 training. So um, to recap, here's a short summary of the heart rate zones that we talked about before coming from Episode 7. So if you haven't listened to it, go ahead and head back over there and check it out because I kind of go into these zones in a little bit more detail on that podcast. So um, so there's five zones, technically six if you count Zone 0, which really isn't a thing, but Zone 0 is your resting heart rate. So this isn't a training zone, but we refer to it later on, so I just thought I'd kind of include it. So zone one is approximately 60 to 65% of your maximum heart rate. This is called the chill zone, where all the energy is supplied by the aerobic system. And again, aerobic means using oxygen. It involves a very low level of intensity, where the effort is too easy to elicit any type of physical or 
or physiological adaptations. Usually it's used for what we call active recovery after a heavy training day or between high intensity intervals. So that's zone one. Zone two is 65 to 75% of your maximum heart rate. So predominantly aerobic in nature, zone two is the lowest intensity at which you can train to improve your physiology. This is kind of basically what they call your all-day pace. So you could jog or ride your bike for hours upon this activity and not really feeling that tired. So you can frequently spend time in this zone without impairing the recovery process. So those days when, you know, I have a scheduled workout to do and I'm just not feeling it, I just don't feel well, so I might just go do a zone two run for like 30 minutes or get on the bike and just stay in the zone two. Um, zone three is 75 to 80% of your maximum heart rate. So this zone is still aerobic, but you do start burning a higher portion of carbs for energy. Uh, you're gonna go at a pace where you can no longer maintain a conversation properly. Lactate can start accumulating from the higher energy demand, which may create some discomfort while training. Zone 4 is 80 to 90% of your heart rate. So this is your race day pace. So if you're trying to PR on a 5K or a long hill climb on a bike, uh, the aerobic system has kind of shifted away and burning very high amount of glucose relative to fatty acids. So your muscles and lungs are burning from the effort. It's incredibly hard to maintain this pace for an extended period of time. And then there's zone 5 which is 90 to 100%. This is aerobic. Basically, it's like, you know, doing a Tabata set, which is, if you're not familiar with Tabata, you, it's eight rounds, and you basically go all out for 20 seconds, rest for 10 seconds, and you can continue the cycle until you're done. Um, or doing some sort of air assault bike, or the, um, the Satan cycle, as I call it, getting on the fan bike, where you just go all out. That'll just kick your butt within multiple seconds. It doesn't take very long, so... So those are kind of the a review of the zones. Um, so now specifically, why zone two? So, um, you know, people do a lot of strength training, high intensity training, and some weekend 5K runs. So um, this is all very important for health and performance. But um, zone two um, is, a, is a great thing to help train and, and build your floor, which I'll talk a little bit more about in a little bit. But um so we kind of neglect the low intensity stuff a lot. So most people who do cardio in zone three rather than zone two. So um, zone three kind of has a lot of names, the gray zone, the no man's land, the zone of minuscule improvement. So um, you probably get that kind of by now that it's not the best zone to train in. So zone three is kind of like training in limbo since you're relying on both fat and carbohydrates for fuel. For the amount of time and effort that you put in, not a whole lot of physiologic adaptations are produced, so it doesn't improve the aerobic or the anaerobic zones to a high degree, so you're just kind of, sort of, you know, not no pun intended, but spinning your wheels and not really getting anywhere. Now, you can train in this fashion and see results, but you never really maximize your potential, so if you're going too hard too often and don't go easy often enough, ignoring the zone 2 training, you never really build a really good aerobic base, which is the foundation of any other form of training that you do. So there's an analogy from Simon Ward that was on his podcast. So aerobic zone 2 training is like raising the water level so a boat is higher up, whereas anaerobic training is like using a crane to lift the boat up instead. So when the water level rises, the boat naturally sits higher without much effort, whereas a crane requires a high level of energy to maintain the same elevation. So how do you calculate your zone two? I did go over this on a podcast prior also. Um, you know, there's the 220 minus your age, which again, I really don't like. I'm more of a fan of the maximum aerobic function or the MAF method. Um, 
So you can go into a lab and get your blood lactate level measured while you exercise at a constantly increasing intensity until you can no longer do it or you can't fill your legs anymore. Um, but this is kind of expensive and it's kind of rough to experience this, which I personally never have done this. But um, so how to how to calculate your MAF or your maximum aerobic function? Um, you need to have a heart rate monitor with a chest strap or a smartwatch. These are the best ways to be accurate on this. Um, so number one, you subtract your age from 180. And then you modify that number based off the following rules. So if you're recovering from a major illness, surgery, or being in the hospital, or you're on you know, routine medications, um, you want to subtract 10 from this number that you get. And then you're going to subtract 10 if you consider yourself to be injury prone. If you get you know, sick more often than you don't, um, allergies or asthma, you don't really consistently exercise, or your athletic performance has actually plateaued, you want to subtract another 10. You want to add 5 to this number if you've been training competitively for more than a year without any issues. Otherwise, leave the number as it is if you don't really fit into these any criteria at the top. So it'll give you a pretty good estimate of the upper bound area of your zone 2 heart rate. So um, if, you don't, if you don't have access to a heart rate monitor, the simplest way to kind of make sure that you're still in zone 2 is basically you can have a normal conversation throughout the session. So it's not as accurate, but it is hassle-free and it does get the job done. So, you know, if you're training alone, you'll be talking to yourself. But if you, you know, going out for an easy jog with a partner, um, then you, as long as you can still talk and not have chopped up sentences, unless you normally talk that way, but if you can just have a regular conversation, then you'll probably most likely be in zone two. So how does this really help you? Um, <clears throat> you know, it builds the base for all your other training, but how exactly does it do it? There's a whole cardiovascular, um, aspect where you actually strengthen your heart but um, it's kind of more of a molecular thing that actually is pretty cool so remembering that lactate is generated from the anaerobic system or meaning without oxygen when fast twitch muscle fast twitch muscle fibers are activated so the reason your muscles start burning at higher intensities is because you have accumulation of hydrogen ions um, in the muscles and exceeds the rate where you can get it out so the concentration of hydrogen ions turns the environment acidic which slows down enzyme activity and ultimately breaks down the glucose itself. Um, this is known as the lactate threshold. There are actually multiple lactate thresholds, but for simplicity's sake, we're just going to call it this how it is. So lactate can be cleared from the muscles through two pathways. Excess lactate can go through channels called monocarboxylate transporter 4 or MCT4 into the bloodstream where then it can provide energies for other cells or be recycled by the liver which is known as the Cori cycle so lactate actually is an energy source so it's not a wasted byproduct you can use it it's just not as easy and as good to use as other fuels for your body so this process takes place on a scale of minutes which is why your muscles turn into jelly and you don't recover very quick after you're doing multiple high intensity efforts so your slow twitch muscle fibers also play a key role in lactate clearance they contain a different variant of the monocarboxylate transporter mct1 which is responsible for taking up lactate and sending it to the mitochondria which as we remember from high school biology is the powerhouse of the cell which this is reused as energy so this happens in mere seconds so it's much more efficient than exporting it to the bloodstream so the more lactate your type 1 fibers can recycle the higher the intensity needed to reach your lactate threshold Zone 2 training increases mitochondrial and MCT1 density in the slow twitch muscle fibers, effectively boosting your capability and capacity to maintain higher intensities without the burn. 
So here's kind of another analogy to make the same sense of the mechanism. So basically you've got two methods to get rid of the garbage, which is the lactate from your home or the mussels. You toss it into a compost or you bag it up and the garbage truck picks it up. Composting gets rid of your garbage quicker, but you only have a small space in your backyard for it. Conversely, the garbage truck takes everything away, but garbage accumulates throughout the week. So training zone two effectively increases the size of your compost pile so you can get rid of more garbage quicker and yield more fertilizer, in this case, which is ATP. So what are the benefits of zone two training? So stimulating mitochondrial growth and function in the slow twitch fibers enables you to remain in the aerobic system at higher intensities, improving your ability to burn fat for fuel, which this is kind of a big selling point for people. So, you know, you see people killing themselves on the treadmill and they're in zone three, zone four, and actually they're burning way more glucose, but they're trying to burn fat. So this is actually not very effective. Um, this is critical for athletic performance, especially in endurance athletes. So while glycogen stores are quite limited, world-class athletes hold on to tens of thousands of calories of energy from fat. So by improving fat utilization, you spare your glycogen stores throughout most of the race. This enables you to tap into glycogen toward the end of the competition to really kind of try to nail it and finish hard at the end. So even if you're just a weekend warrior, zone two will elevate your aerobic base, increasing the capacity for your engine to do more work. You know, I talk about work in this in the technical sense of you know denoting any type of production of force. So let's take strength training. The reason you can no longer perform an exercise like squat or bench press is because your muscles don't produce enough ATP to meet the demand placed on them. So when you're building up your base slowly, you improve the ability to create energy that in the states of high demand. So this is purely anecdotal, but um, progressively overloading at a quicker rate by incorporating more zone 2 training. So low-intensity aerobic training also keeps your body in more of a parasympathetic state compared to high-intensity intervals. So there's two kind of main components of your autonomic nervous system, the parasympathetic and sympathetic. So the sympathetic is known as the fight-or-flight response and the parasympathetic is the rest and digest portion. So um, those are the two kind of things that you need to look at. But if you do too much high-intensity training without accommodating the higher levels of stress, then you'll quickly shift your body into overdrive and then impair not just your recovery but also your overall health. Zone 2 helps to balance the stress response and allows you to rest and recover more efficiently but still building an aerobic base because you're not taxing your system. Um, so aerobic exercise will also improve your cardiovascular health. It increases stroke volume of the heart, which is how much blood is pumped out on each beat. Um, capillary density, which the capillaries are the very, very small blood vessels at the end where arteries meet the veins and your VO2 max, which is the maximum amount of oxygen that you can utilize during exercise. Robust cardiovascular helps also reduce risk of metabolic disease such as obesity, heart disease, diabetes, or blood pressure. So the more you do this, the better your health will be. How much zone 2 training do you really need? It kind of depends on your goals. Two days a week for about 30 to 45 minutes is basically maintaining and maintenance. So yes, you'll get a little bit of benefit, but you're not really building if that's what you're, if that's what you're wanting. Three sessions will begin to build your base, but not quite as fast. Four sessions will really build the engine. Um, so for me personally, I do garage gym athlete programming, which is phenomenal, by the way. So again, not a sponsor, but if you want some kick-ass training, go meet up with them, and they'll give you some really good stuff. So I typically do their training about five days a week. 
I will do one long run, which I call my math Mondays, um, running anywhere between 60 to 90 minutes in zone two, depending on how much time I have. Um, I usually try to run at least one more time during the week if I can. I have noticed a big difference since I started doing it. So I'm going to tell you right now, if you decide this sounds pretty awesome to you and you go out and do it, if you're anything like me where you're somewhat competitive, you're really going to get angry and pissed off because when I first started, I I hated zone two training when I was, when it was recommended me to do it, I did it and I got so angry and I almost quit my workout cause I was so mad, but, um, you have to give it time. So for me, I could literally run 10 to 15 seconds and then my heart rate would jump up crazy high. So I have to sit and walk for two to three minutes and it just made me mad. But after being diligent and patient, I can now run for my entire time and rarely have to alter my cadence a whole lot. Um, depending on, you know, there's multiple factors, how much sleep you've had, how much hydration, how much caffeine you've taken. So for caffeine intake, see episode eight, if it's windy, if there's hills. So if you had a rough night, or if the workout the day before was pretty tough, your heart rate may be all over the place anyway. So, But just stick with it. It'll come, and it's totally worth it. Um, I know it doesn't make any sense by running slower to run faster, but you actually will. So this, if you take a slower pace for longer, you will end up being faster. And so, again, this basically builds your aerobic base, so you're raising your floor so you can run farther and longer. Also, like I stated earlier, this is the ultimate zone to burn fat. So by running in zone 2... Again, this is where your body burns the most fat for fuel. So um, instead of killing yourself, going out for hard runs, or you can only run for about 10 minutes at a time, just try taking it slow and uh, see how things go. But, um, <clears throat> you know, you'll look kind of, I guess, you know, silly or whatever words you want to use because you're literally trotting along like very slow. It kind of looks like you're 80 years old trying to go out for a run, but it really does wonders for you. You know, it took me a good three months to build up where I could actually run and not have to stop. And then once since I continued to do it, um, my base has been really good. So I was, you know, for a while there, I was running maybe 13 minute miles in zone two. And depending on the day, depending on the, the temperature, depending on my sleep, I can usually run a couple of miles in at about a 10 minute mi- uh, pace at zone two. Um, again, depending on, there's a lot of factors, but so it's really helped my training and I'm a big believer in it. And, you know, anybody that asks me, that's one thing I tell them they should really try to do because really it's easy. It just takes time. And so when you get done, yes, you're a little bit tired, but it's, it's a, it's not like you just went out and went all out like a CrossFit or some sort of high intensity workout. It's just a long, slow process. But, but anyway, that's hernias and zone two training. Um, thanks a lot for listening. You know, please, uh, if you can, leave up to a five-star review. I'd really appreciate it. And if there's any comments, please feel free to leave those as well. If you have any questions or would like to see anything talked about on the podcast, I'll be happy to take any type of questions. Uh, Movement at gmail.com would be great. And again, thanks a lot for listening. And remember, movement is the best medicine.